Hello and welcome back to Twin Peaks The Return, a Season 3 podcast. I am Andy Hazel. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. It's been around 10 months, I think, since the last, and it's only recently that I've felt there is enough happening around Twin Peaks to warrant bringing back a new episode of the podcast. What's brought me back isn't the spicy rumours around Season 4. I'm going to wait until there's something official before I make an episode about that. But something has happened that I thought was worthy of deeper investigation. Last week, a YouTuber called Rossiter, who also goes by the name Twin Perfect, published a four and a half hour video entitled Twin Peaks Actually Explained No Really, and it quickly got the attention of the casual, committed and hardcore fans with its authoritative tone, the professionalism with which it was assembled, and the sheer volume of research that had clearly gone into it. Some of the key arguments that he made in the video were that Twin Peaks is a self-aware television show about the balance of darkness and light on TV and a reaction to the amount of consumable violence made in television in the 1980s. Rossiter also argued that FBI agents are literal agents for our attention, that season three was made as a response to the idea of revisiting Twin Peaks, and that Judy is a spiritual embodiment of the concept of explanation or closure. So no matter how you feel about the video, whether you balk at the idea of having Twin Peaks explained at all, or if you dislike the title as I did at first, though, as Rossiter explains, there is a lot more to it than it first seems, It's hard not to love Twin Peaks more after watching it. Like any thorough piece of criticism, it makes you impressed not only with the critic, but with the work. After I watched this, I thought Twin Peaks was even more amazing than I had already thought. And of course, like any good piece of analysis, it raises as many questions as it answers. And I had reams of questions after I watched his video. Rossiter was kind enough to accept my invitation to ask some of these, and I found his answers incisive and compelling. And so here is my interview with Rossiter, a.k.a. Twin Perfect creator of Twin Peaks Explained, No Really. So first of all, thank you very much for um, agreeing to be on the podcast. Can I first begin by congratulating you on this monumental achievement and ask how you went about doing it? Well, thank you very much, uh, first of all. Um, I really appreciate that. Um, I uh, Well, I'm my channel is dedicated to explaining complex media. So I explain, I had some success with a Prometheus video where people weren't quite engaging with the movie as I, I don't th- I think uh, Ridley Scott was intending. So that kind of thing. Uh, I actually got my start on a video game series called Silent Hill, which is what led me to Twin Peaks. Uh, the biggest two influences on that video game were Twin Peaks and Jacob's Ladder. So my first interaction with Twin Peaks was through that video game and and also fairly recently within the past 10 years or so. I just thought that I had a perspective that I wasn't seeing on the internet too much. What I like to do is I like to go through a creator-centric view of certain pieces of media. And so I hadn't seen that too much with Twin Peaks. And so I thought I could offer something in that realm. Right, because you seemed to come out of nowhere. As someone who feels like they've been part of the Twin Peaks community um, through the podcast and having attended the Twin Peaks Festival in Washington and being across a lot of the other podcasts and critiques, it was strange to suddenly see this new face and hear this new take. Have you been part of the fora and festivals and other places where fans usually congregate? No, actually, I <laughs> I, I tend to keep to myself. Um, I'm, I'm not very good with social media. And I'm not very good with uh, internet communities. I tend to keep to myself. I have my own uh, Discord server for my uh, Twin Perfect fan base. But other than that, I don't tend to engage with too many communities on the internet uh, personally. Uh, Just as a third party, I would say. 
Have you been following the reception of the video, reading the comments, that kind of thing? I I have uh, not. I haven't directly followed the YouTube comments. Um, there's just too many of them. But uh, Twitter seems to like it a lot. Uh, I know Reddit didn't like it as <laughs> at first when I put it first put it up. Uh, I think the reception has has warmed over there. I know the Lynch subreddit really likes right. it. Right. Okay. Great. Um, yeah. Because I, I noticed that uh, someone on YouTube called Heather O'Day said she was your sister and she was saying that it took you over a year to put together. Uh, is she right? Uh, this is the product of two years of work, Two actually. years. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Okay. And so it really took you over two years? Right. Well, I, um, I had inklings of what Twin Peaks might have been about before the return. And I finished the return two years ago this month. And at that point, I felt like I got confirmation for uh, proceeding with a starting to build a case with what I thought was going on. And at that point, it launched into research and uh, writing. And I every one of my videos starts with a very, very lengthy research phase where I I will track down every interview I can find, every... Uh, featurette, all the uh, the videos, every even if they're even if it's people related to the production, not even directly. I'll I'll try to search for that kind of stuff. I'll start looking for theories. I'll look for opinions. I'll watch everybody's videos, and I'll start to test theories and see if I have something that I can offer that is not being said. And at that point, I'll go into the writing. I'll I'll the The writing took about a year on this one, and then it's shooting and editing. Okay, and you do all of that yourself the the graphics, the shooting. The... I do. Um, this I had some help with some graphics from uh, Versiris. She's a very talented uh, art illustrator on the internet. She has her own uh, YouTube channel where she does animated Pokedex entries. Right. Okay. Uh, so when you began, did you have an idea that this would end up becoming a four and a half hour video? Was that the the goal you had in mind? No. <laughs> No, I usually I have a um, a pretty good idea of how video how long videos are going to be based on uh, page number. So um, a forty five minute video from me will typically be about seventy five pages, and this script was about hundred and four. So I thought what I had on my hands was about an hour long video, uh, maybe two. I had no idea that it was going to stretch on this long. I was actually cutting things uh, frantically toward the end of the. Uh, before toward the end of the editing because I knew that people are not typically ready to engage with a four and a half hour video. Okay. So did you contemplate breaking it up into shorter videos? I did. Um, I had a focus group and I have some people close to me at, who knew that what was going on and everybody seemed to agree that one piece was the best way to do it, especially with the rise of podcasts and um, long form. I tend to have a lot of success with long form videos on my channel. I was questioning the decision until I found out that Vsauce, right before I uploaded my video, had uploaded a three-hour video. And then somebody else pointed out a seven-hour Resident <laughs> Evil franchise wow, analysis okay. video that was getting a lot of traction. So I didn't feel so bad about four and a half hours anymore. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so what else did the focus group do? Did they help you with um, like text or did they just advise you on pacing? Right. Uh, well, I had a few people who were new to Twin Peaks watch the series and update me on feelings that they were having. E everybody that you can get that can give you some indication of what they think is going on actually helps with uh, this kind of analysis. When I finished my script, I had everybody sat down. We did a big read through. 
um, for feedback. That took about eight hours to get through. I had somebody representative of different parts of my audience. So I had a Lynch expert. I had a Twin Peaks expert. I had somebody who didn't really know anything. Uh, and then I had somebody who is the was the self-admitted dummy of the group who didn't really understand, wasn't engaging with any kind of mystery whatsoever. And uh, it seemed to go pretty well for the first read-through. I had to do some editing. And I was actually adding and cutting from the script right up to the end of editing. Um, right. Okay. It's a very complex show, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is very complex. Um, it's fantastic you had that, uh, that, that focus group to bounce ideas off. Was there anything that didn't quite make it in? Any um, th- theories that you couldn't quite land? Um, I had a few, I had a few that, that weren't coming across. Uh, a lot of the text you see in the video actually was added because the script, the way I was describing things in the script wasn't coming across. Some of the diagrams were born out of uh, concepts that were a little too complex. For example, the Philip Jeffries scene. That Philip Jeffries thing was the most difficult thing I could I could not figure out for the life of me how to get that across without some kind of a diagram. Yeah, right. So just for clarification, this is the scene in Firewalk With Me where Philip Jeffries appears in the FBI offices and it just doesn't really seem to fit right. in the rest of the film. It's, it's being like a narrative story. So it's kind of come out of nowhere. Right. Uh, and there were a few things that were pointed out that where I was weak. Um, and I got to uh, rethink those things. Uh, the, uh, the monkey, for example. Um uh, that's just one example I can think of. There were there were a bunch of those. And then uh, mostly it was just clarification on things that I thought I had explained properly that weren't fully explained. See, this is what I really love about it. People are already arguing over what you're actually saying. But the way you've put it together, the way you've organized this information to tackle something as unwieldy as Twin Peaks, I found really, really compelling. Because like a lot of fans, I've read a lot of essays, I subscribe to Blue Rose, I visit 25 years later and listen to a lot of podcasts. But the way you organize this information... Um, where did you source it from? Did you draw on your own conclusions or did you find ideas and draw connections between things that you'd found in forums and well, seen on videos, that sort of thing? Right. M- much of it was from myself and from just from reading interviews. I always go creator-centric. I'm very creator-centric. So I will. I just diving into David Lynch interviews, particularly Mark Frost interviews. Your, your interview with Mark Frost was particularly enlightening. Thank you for that. Thank you. That was a very lucky score. Um, I'm also... I. I, I have a perspective on on these things that uh, I don't think a lot of people have. Um, if people have, if people are watching or listening to this and they haven't seen the video, spoiler warning: we're we're going to start spoiling everything right now. But uh, um, I grew up with a father who was an electrical engineer who worked for a cable company, so I kn- I understood a lot of how TV worked. Uh, from very early on. Okay. So when I started recognizing these things in Twin Peaks, that's when the inklings started. And then I started to get into very specific things with how how TV was working. And a lot of people have pointed out, you know, telephone poles and owls and transmission towers and these kinds of things. But when I heard David Lynch say the words 60 cycle alternating current electricity, <laughs> I knew exactly why he knew that right. because okay. of my father's experience with the cable company. Sure. So um, a lot of it was was prior knowledge that I had. A lot of it was um, discarded theories. Uh, I've I've I was a huge reader of the Reddit theories for a long time, 
uh, I'll, I found a lot of the theories. You, you may recognize a lot of the things that I'm bringing up from previous discussions that people had had that have been long since discarded as being ridiculous or, or too on the nose. And uh, that was actually part of my testing process. I, I went through every theory I could find and followed it to its extreme conclusion. And the literal TV meta idea was the only thing that kept coming back and kept holding true through all of it. Right, okay. So, uh, yeah, so there was some private knowledge, there was some, some theories that had been discarded, and then marrying that to the core level intentions from David Lynch's interviews was how I knew that I had a pretty solid case. It struck me that uh, since you're so author-centric in the way that you analyze Twin Peaks, that there was a lot of stuff you didn't put in and that I felt you could have, and I was interested in why you omitted some of the things you did. You do deal with Mark Frost early on by saying that it's very difficult to draw the line where it comes to ascribing specific authorship, and a lot of the right. time it can't be done. But there is this whole world of theophysy which has influenced Mark Frost and his works and his writing in Twin Peaks. And given your key theory is built on the binary idea of dark and light, and that's a fairly key tenet of theophysy and the Jungian shadow self and that sort of stuff, but you didn't put it in. Was this something you didn't think was important when it came to explaining what we were actually seeing? Right. Um, I I have come across that stuff. I'm very familiar with Mark Frost's work. Uh, I want to I want to take some more time to disclaim that I am not downplaying anything that Mark Frost did. Uh, your interview, the reason, one of the reasons your interview was so helpful to my script was because that was what helped me to understand what Mark Frost was doing with Twin Peaks versus what David Lynch was doing, or at least what I think that they were doing. Yeah. So Mark Frost loves that, that theology stuff. He loves theophysy. He loves uh, occultism. He loves conspiracy theories. He loves all that stuff. And so Mark Frost is very into the rabbit holes and the threads that don't necessarily lead anywhere, but lead to very, very interesting ideas. You know, there's the, the Project Blue Book stuff and the Dugpa stuff and the Native American legends. And it's all very, very interesting. And I love it. I love the I love secret history and I love uh, Final Dossier. But I could not, for the life of me, figure out how any of it would tie together. It just seems like... Mark Frost is a fan of the dead ends in that he wants you to see if you can forge, you can help him to forge a connection between all of these things. Whereas David Lynch, as if you follow David Lynch, and I'm sure you have, you know that David Lynch has a very, very, very specific idea, very specific feeling that he wants to instill in you. And he wants you to arrive at for yourself. So he, the, reason, the reason Mark Frost doesn't want to tell you what's going on is because he wants you to build the mystery with him, whereas David Lynch doesn't want to tell you what's going on because he wants you to, I guess, incept the idea for yourself so that you have a greater feeling with it. Okay. So you must have come across a lot of contradictions. I'm thinking that a lot of the listeners must have seen David Lynch interviews, and if you look at enough of them over time, you'll find contradictions. Um, I'm thinking of the interview you use in the video where he talks about Lost Highway and says that there is a specific way of understanding that story. And then other times he'll say that his works, all of them, are open to individual interpretations. So how did you work your way through these? Like, um, What guided you? Right. Okay. So I think there is a distinction to be made between interpretation and intention. Right. And this was actually brought up in a lot of discussions since my video went up. A lot of people have been bringing this to my attention, and, it, and they're absolutely right. There is a distinction between what he is trying to 
uh, instill in you versus what you can get out of it. So I actually, what part of the, the I'm actually wishing I had left it in. Part of the things that I cut were uh, very long and elaborate ways of the, the ways people absorb David Lynch works and, and Mark Frost works. And uh, what you get out of it, what you, what you see in it that relates to you, it's perfectly valid. It's 100%. And that's what David, I think that's what David Lynch is referring to. Uh, you can watch Twin Peaks and read a lot of uh, themes of uh, it's about abuse and it's about cycles of abuse and these kinds of things. That's all perfectly valid. You can read into it. I don't know. It's kind of like a Stanley Kubrick. The uh, What's that movie? Room 237. The, uh, Room 237. Yes. It's like that where it's like there's all of these things that you can read into it and you can get out of it. And it's all totally interesting and 100% valid and they don't mesh with each other. And that's totally fine. Um, if it means something to you on a personal level, it'll be like anything else. Anything, anything can mean anything to anybody on a personal level. But when you get into the idea that he's trying to convey, that's when things get very specific. And that's where, that's where you get things like him turning away the, sta the color of the stapler on the desk. And, you know, the way the, the, a line was read that he didn't quite like, or maybe he'll get upset at an actor for adding an extra word to the line that wasn't there in his vision, because he, he's very, very particular with that idea. Everything has to serve that idea. Yeah. That's the one thing that he repeats over and over and over again in all interviews. No matter how much he contradicts himself, he always comes back to there's a central idea. Everything comes out of the central idea. One thing I found really interesting about season three is that there was so much information, so much uh, about the production was known to us. Uh, we saw a lot of behind-the-scenes footage. There was people taking photos during the production. We could ask questions of Sabrina Sutherland, who was often very open in her answers. There was so much information around it, which wasn't the case at all um, in the early 90s. Um, and given the volume of information, I thought you led the viewer through it really well in your video. But um, a lot of the ideas you used to lead us through were based on the presumption that one concept or an object means one specific thing. So... When Lynch and Frost came up with an idea in 1989, when they were writing the first season, which may well have been uh, an idea that Lynch had about a good feeling involving the combination of a certain object in a certain place, you ascribe a concrete meaning to it in 2019. So I was kind of interested as to what role you think uh, Lynch's subconscious had in a lot of what we ended up seeing and you ended up analysing. Okay, a lot of... Well, first of all, thank you for the for the compliment about the um, the organisation. That was actually most of the hardest work writing the script was organizing it in a way that was easy for the audience to follow. Because I understand, like I say in the video, it you kind of have to explain everything before you can explain everything. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the challenge was getting these ideas to sit right with you, to to convince, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to convince anybody, but I'm trying to make the best case I possibly can. And even if you don't agree with it, you at least understand it. And it's different in the finished product when you're watching a four and a half hour video and you get all of it laid out for you versus the two year process of, you know, slow, very methodical realization of all these ideas. I was like I said, I was realizing new things about the show. I think the last thing I realized was the monkey, the curiosity idea. Uh, because before I had some kind of uh, an idea that it was a primal version of David Lynch. You know, a lot of people have pointed out that Pierre's foot is resting on a paint can. So maybe this is a early version of Lynch that's coming out 
I'm not saying that any of these ideas have to be it, but I, I just, like I said, making the best case. I got completely sidetracked. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> um, it was about the role of Lynch's subconscious and how you're ascribing meaning. To right, them. the subconscious. Right, right. Okay. So, yeah, I there was... Um, he, so I heard a thing very recently that I thought was really interesting. Some people think primarily in pictures and some people think primarily in words. I am a word thinker. I think David Lynch is a hundred thousand percent a picture thinker. You know, this is a, a scientific concept. And I think David Lynch talks a lot about not being able to put things in words, especially when it comes to feelings. And he, as an artist, he wants to convey feeling primarily. Oh, and then there's also that famous story of him watching just some of the dailies and then saying, oh, so that's what that means. I think he knows all of these things intuitively. And what, when he talks about intuition, what he means is that the feelings tend toward a specific idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sidetrack a little bit. My analysis for the first two seasons was very quick when I was doing my notes. I, was, I would take notes on, you know, concepts and themes and a lot of it was very much just the soap opera tv show part of it which i don't devalue but in terms of an analysis it doesn't really help that much for that kind of stuff but then when i got to the film uh and then especially the return my notes for each episode would go from one paragraph in the you know the first couple of seasons to maybe two pages with all of this all of this symbolism and all of these these ideas but they all tended toward the same place. They all pointed toward the same place. And so this is how I suspect that David Lynch kind of does know exactly what he's doing. He just doesn't, I'm not going to say that he doesn't know that he knows, but I think he really does know. He just doesn't know how to say it in words. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, because there are some interpretations you made with things like Garmin Bozier and the White Horse and their meanings seem to shift over time. But the way you argued it, it seemed as though Lynch and Frost intentionally knew 30 years ago that these objects meant all these different things that weren't revealed to us at the time. So when it turns up later on in season three, it has additional meanings. Is, so you, do you think that all those meanings were inherent there right in the beginning when they first came up with these ideas? I think yes and no for a lot of these things. It's that action and reaction. He's always talking about action and reaction. He doesn't necessarily know what something means until it sits in the work and it has a chance to talk to him and then he can repurpose it and use it later that that season two cliffhanger was a cliffhanger for a while but then when he came back to direct and and he saw what had happened to his show that he had apparently abandoned he repurposed that to be the just the the correct answer it's the end it's the correct end it's the ending to the story so maybe Maybe the symbols could have changed over time. I don't think a lot of the symbols did change over time because they're the white horse and the Garmenbosia seem to be consistent to me. Okay, because in some cases you ascribe specific meanings to things that are inherent within the show. So something like Garmenbosia will have a meaning within the, within uh, the series. But then another thing, uh, you like Spirit Man, you will ascribe a meaning that is found on Wikipedia. So um, where, where do you think that line gets drawn? Right. I actually think Spirit Mound came from Mark Frost. Right. Yeah. yeah that makes <laughs> because sense. if you read uh, Secret History, there's a lot of uh, Lewis and Clark in there. Yep. And, and a lot of Wikipedia in there. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of Wikipedia in the, the Mark Frost books. And um, so I think that was a happy accident of Mark and David Lynch working together 
bouncing ideas off of each other. Maybe the idea of, you know, Spirit Mound being a Native American legend with the little people could have surfaced in the early 90s. It could have been very recent. It could have been very old. Um, but then David Lynch would take that and say, okay, maybe this works with my idea. Maybe it doesn't. And then the same thing would happen with Mark Frost. I would, I would think that David Lynch would suggest an idea that Mark Frost, maybe, maybe that works with the way I want to do things and maybe it doesn't. But things do develop over time. And it could be that the mounds of dirt in the show had no definite meaning until season three, when we came in demanding our explanations. And then so David Lynch explained it. Right. Okay. I don't necessarily say that anything I'm saying is, is the one true answer. I, I just, like I said, try to make the best case for it. And if it fits and there's really no other explanation, then it, and then I'm going to call that a success. And the Spirit Mound thing, I mean, if there's too many connections for Spirit Mound not to be, you know, related to the little people and the dirt mounds in the show and the Spirit Finger. And you think about that, Tammy. Yeah, again, directing our attention. Um, what also surprised me was how much you omitted um, a lot of the pro- impact of production restrictions on Twin Peaks. A lot of what we saw was spontaneously created on set. And before you can work out what you're going to spontaneously create on set, you have to make a lot of budgetary, logistical, and casting decisions. But um, besides the push to reveal Laura's killer in season two and Lynch nearly pulling out of production for season three before it started, um, there's a lot of stuff you didn't mention, like the increase in the number of episodes um, or how Chet Desmond was originally meant to be Cooper. These things all ended up becoming canonical. Um, was that a deliberate decision to omit those? Right. The, well, first of all, the video is long enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but second, I I wanted to i'm building i'm building a case and i'm i really needed i needed uh just enough to build my case so all that stuff is valid and interesting and cool to talk about but i didn't feel that it helped with my video i did have some stuff about how chet desmond was originally supposed to be maybe agent cooper and maybe that's why chet desmond has his own mo which is kind of a clue to say you know dale cooper has his quirky way of doing things chet desmond also has his quirky way of doing things so maybe these are kind of the same kind of guy that's why the chet desmond replacement works so well but it's just trying to make a concise argument okay uh, can you make a concise argument one way or the other about what you think is happening with the reflections in the window of the plane that uh, a lot of people spend a lot of time puzzling over on Reddit and various other corners of the internet? Right. I tend to take an Occam's razor look at a lot of things. It's if it if it fits and it makes sense and there are other I've, I've like I said I I followed all those ideas I tried to follow them to their conclusion and. I know Mark Frost would would probably do that kind of thing. I don't think David Lynch would do that kind of thing because I don't think David Lynch wants to put anything in the show that can't be universally recognized. Okay. Because he wants as many people to get his message as he possibly can. And he was in charge of editing. He's in charge of shooting. You know, um, as Sabrina said in the interview that she did with you, uh, Mark was the film writer. And then when his film writing job was done, he went to write his book and he was kind of out of production except for when uh lynch would check up with him on some rewrites that he would do so i it would be david lynch in control of that kind of of symbolism any kind of visual stuff and he keeps very tight control over that kind of stuff so it would have been him to put the reflections in the window if indeed that is what's happening if if that's happening we have to grant that that's what's happening before we can follow it down any kind of cryptography path 
and I don't think David Lynch would. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it does remind me that I got schooled on Twitter after Part 8 came out and I referred to it as a specifically Lynchian episode and people rightfully pointed out that no, it's just as much a product of both Frost and Lynch as every other part of Season 3. Right. But it does feel like um, that when something is being communicated in such strongly visual terms, to me that feels more like a way that Lynch would choose to communicate. Right. Uh, Mark Mark actually described their writing process as it would be Mark writing everything and then Lynch just picturing everything. Yes, right. And yeah. nothing would go into the scripts unless Lynch had fully considered it, you know, in his imaginary movie screen in the sky. So the the visual re- very much was Lynch. Right. You mentioned dream. Um, so many people were focused on the question of who is the dreamer and whose dream are we in. And I think that your explanation of this is one of the strongest parts of the video. Right. Was this a theory that evolved as you studied or was it always pretty clear to you? It was always fairly clear to me, but only because of the amount of Lynch I had read and the amount of Lynch I had seen. When he's asked about making television and making movies, he just returns to that idea so often. I had a lot more clips of him just repeating those ideas. I think I settled on four of them that I I thought were the best cases of that, but he he just repeats over and over again you know film is a dream you you enter a dream when you watch it tv shows well i'm making a film on tv so that must also be a dream and you leave your reality to enter that when you watch it i i did follow all of the theories you know the idea of maybe the whole thing is laura palmer's dream maybe the whole thing is dale cooper's dream um maybe it's uh as nick spheres pointed out maybe it's a collective dream that everybody dreams including the characters and the people at home um, that I felt that was, of, of all the theories, I felt that was the closest to the answer. But when I initially started thinking about it, but then I just kept coming back to David Lynch talking about, well, film is a dream. And so when Monica Bellucci says, we are like the dreamer, well, she's Monica Bellucci. She's a real person. Monica Bellucci's not playing a character. She's playing herself. So if that's a real person and she's saying that real people are like the dreamer, that already gives you, that starts to form a picture of some indication of where to follow that idea. So that's just my thought process on where that went. Okay, because you do make a really compelling case for just looking at the, merely looking at the editing and the way that this particular scene with Bellucci and Lynch is cut, that just seems to make right. the point extremely clear. Um, one point where I think I disagree on with you is toward the end, you claim that with all this explanation and with this sense of closure, you are actually playing the role of Judy. And I'm not sure you are because I think you're actually triggering a whole bunch more questions and a lot more Right, engagement. no, okay. So on that, I, that's very interesting. Yes, I, I, I saw that too. Um, so this idea that I'm Judy, I'm Judy as David Lynch would see it. I'm not actually, I don't think I'm Judy either. I, I, I kept David Lynch's intentions in mind the whole time. I've actually just been you know, having a little mini heart attack over whether or not David Lynch is okay with this. Um, I don't know if you've read that Lynch on Lynch book that I was reading from, from the video. Uh, yeah, not for a while. Fantastic book. Yeah, um, yeah. It's uh, I don't know if you read the original print or the reprint, but in the reprint, there's a foreword from Chris Rodley where he says that uh, David Lynch felt so violated by giving up his so much information about himself that he actually checked himself into a rape crisis center. Really? Which, I mean, that's just heartbreaking to me. And so I've, I've kept that in my mind. This whole, this whole process has been, you know, uh, simultaneously very enjoyable, but also, you know, I'm worried about the guy. Um, yeah. Uh, but this idea that I am Judy, I would see that I would say that that's what David Lynch thinks Judy is. Whereas, and I say in the video, I very much disagree 
with David Lynch's idea that explanation brings closure. It does for a lot of people, but at the same time, like you said, it sparks a lot more uh, conversation. Actually, I think that if you leave things so mysterious, if you're if you're too mysterious, that is also a barrier for many people because people will just you know, as Lynch has gotten over the years, they'll just say he's just being Lynch. Lynch is just being Lynch. You know, it's that whole Jim Belushi way of looking at things. It's the uh, that whole the whole joke about, you know, this art is very insightful and crazy. This person must be on drugs, you know, and it's just like if, if everything gets dismissed too easily, if you don't explain enough, which I think was actually uh, in a in a very, very complicated way, part of what brought season three about because the mystery was dying for 25 years it was just dying out nobody was nobody was paying attention anymore and so you you kind of if you want to bring it back you kind of have to answer questions or people are going to keep yeah, dismissing yeah but then also throughout that whole time there is like essays there's you know um uh, festivals keeps going on brad dukes will come out with his book and suddenly everybody's back on board with this you know <laughs> the, the, the flame gets relit right Right. But, but you, you have to, so like, there's a lot of direct answers, you know, what is the blue rose? And then Tammy just tells you what the blue rose is. And then Albert says, yeah, it's exactly right. You're right, Tammy. So now we know an answer to the blue rose where previously we had, we could only speculate, you know, you have to answer things to bring people in, but then to, I think it's masterful the way he introduced more questions with the answers, except I disagree that they are questions that can't be answered with a self-contained view of the show. Like you don't, I don't think we need a season four to answer the questions that were posed by season three. And as I say in the video again, uh, we had everything we needed really. And I was saying this to my, my focus group and I, and a lot of them were upset by this, you know, just fake fit, you know, jokingly upset, but they, they tended to agree that the, this whole idea of it being a TV meta, um, really was answered in the movie with the idea of the ring and the Formica table and electricity and going up and down intercourse between the two worlds. And, you know, we live in a dream. All of these ideas were being explained, just not so explicitly. Um, in the video, you do a brief analysis of the Native American war cry, that sort of sound, that sound that we first hear made by the old bellhop play by um, Hank Warden. Um, and you posit that it's the sound of a fire alarm, the sort of announcement that Bob is coming. Um, f- I think for a lot of people, they would think straight away that um, you know Hank Warden played uh, a character in The Searchers that also made that that Native American war cry sound. And I personally thought that it was more to do with uh, on off on off. It's like the audio equivalent of a strobe light, like a balance of light and darkness, sound and then silence, sound and then silence, which I thought was a fairly obvious way for Lynch to say, you know, it's it's about the sounds, you know, right. Um, right. Yeah. That, 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 that's not, I'm not I'm not invalidating any of that, that, that could that very well be part of it. Um, from what I know of Lynch, he is usually very direct with his symbolism. Um, the most direct way to uh, absorb that information would be, you know, what does it sound like it? He's never, you're never shown a symbol outside of a greater context. And when you are, it's in season three, where there is no greater context, where there's nowhere to follow it. Uh, since you are so author-focused in your study of Twin Peaks, and David Lynch, when he does talk publicly about his art, is usually talking about it in the context of transcendental meditation, how far into that realm did you end up venturing? 
Right. Yeah. I looked into a lot of that. And like I say in the video, I don't want to get into any arguments about whether or not transcendental meditation is valid. Um, there, there tend to be a lot of arguments about the practice on the internet, which I would like to avoid. However, I will say that uh, the second I started looking into that, I started, I started to see a lot of that in a lot of Lynch's work. And that he, it, it still feeds into his, his message of balance. Every time he talks about that unified field, he's talking about opposites, combined opposites, light and dark together. And so it's, it's just re, a reinforcement of, you know, it's like, of course he would be into that. He, he wanted balance before transcendental meditation, and then he found transcendental meditation and he got his balance. So it, it just kind of works out that way. I'll, I will say that, that one of the biggest moments in writing this was looking into those transcendental meditation talks and seeing that stuff appearing in the show. Uh, weirdly enough, the one time I've had a chance to ask David Lynch a question, I asked him specifically about this. Um, and I'll play that recording, which is not a great quality um, for listeners now. Hi, it's Andy. I'm a writer and a musician. Um, yeah, and it's Andy. <laughs> in my research about TM, I came across the concept of dissociation, which is where an identity will split after a period or an incident of extreme stress. And this seems to be the state that some people are in when, when they find TM and they manage to become a better version of themselves, I suppose. Um, anyway, in reading about this, it reminded me of the journey of Dale Cooper and Twin Peaks The Return. My question is, are there concepts from TM that find their way directly into your works? No, not really. Um, again, it's just ideas that, that happen to come along and that I fall in love with. Or, you know, that we are writers, if I'm working with somebody else, fall in love with. So, um, but it's, it's transcendental meditation which opens the, you know, the door to that field within, which is our big, big friend. More ideas, more happiness, more energy, more intelligence, more creativity, more peace is there within every human being. The big, big, big treasury, our dear friend, our self. And so uh, it's so important for every human being to transcend every day. Like I say, for some reason we've lost contact with this field. Let's reestablish contact. Thank you very much. And finally, are there any creative projects you're working on at the moment that you can talk about? I'm trying to get back into the world of painting. <laughs> when was this? Uh, that was March 2018. Okay, so it was after the return. Yep. That's funny because he's got literally the unified field appearing in his show. <laughs> yeah, that's just one example. Um, I mean, I haven't gone deep into the Transcendental Meditation books, but even skimming over them, I could see things that seemed familiar to me. Right. That's, and that's where I attribute that idea that maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he knows, that, but he doesn't know. Maybe he doesn't know that he knows that, that that's what he's doing. You know, I, I will say that that idea of the fractured... That, 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 that sounds more like a Mark Frost than a David Lynch idea, especially, especially since uh, Frost is a Jungian guy, and Jung, and Jung is all about the, the integration of the shadow self. And I did have a lot of that in, the, in, my, in my analysis, the, this idea that, you know, Dale Cooper failed to integrate the shadow at the end of season two, but, and, and, which is really cool. But then there's the question why. It's like the log lady says, you, you have your answers, but there's still the question why. And you and and then that's where I 
you know, you follow that idea down. Why does Dale Cooper not integrate his shadow self? You know, is it just, is it just to say, you know, sometimes you don't integrate your shadow self. Is that it? Is that really it? Or is there something further? How far can you go with it? <laughs> yeah, well, that was always uh, because I thought when he tried to enter the Black Lodge at the end of season two, he was doing it with imperfect courage and he was sacrificing himself willingly for um, Annie Blackburn. And you know, at one point, the man from another place literally says wrong way, like he's going the wrong way about right. doing this. Um, but that again, that's just you know one reading, and perhaps I'm overthinking it. <laughs> you know, there's uh, a lot. It seems quite clear when seeing your video. People do tend to get lost in the weeds. Uh, they tend to read a lot into it. That that I mean, that's that that interpretation idea that that David Lynch wants to encourage. Yes, it's all there. Can I turn our attention now to the future? What do you think will be happening with the future of Twin Peaks, and what do you hope will happen? Are we talking about the rumors of the season four? Yeah, yeah, because it seems like a I, coincidence that um, that your video came out just around the time that interest is being heightened again with these discussions. Right, that's an extremely happy accident on my part. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like when Brad Dukes put um, his book out and then um, season three was announced a month later. Right, fantastic. Um, I would say that a conclusion that you can draw from at least my analysis is that uh, I have always thought there can't be a season four. There couldn't, there can't physically be a season four because the show is dead and it's, and the horse has been beaten. It is a dead horse. There's nothing left. That's the conclusion that I draw from my video. I think if there were to be a season four, it would be about that. It would be, I, th I think it would be even further removed from Twin Peaks than the season three was. And season three is very, very far removed from Twin Peaks. Uh, so it would it Twin Peaks season three is already about the concept of Twin Peaks not existing. I don't think people I don't think anyone, no matter what you believe, will argue that that theme is present there, that the that it's a show about the, the show's own age and it's it's dying and it's irrelevant. And it's, you know, as I as I conclude, being explained out of existence. And I think a lot of this uh, hype recently is probably misattributed. I think it is probably about maybe some feature or some extra making of video that all those actors got together to do together and they haven't, you know, revealed it yet. Maybe it'll appear on the A to Z collection, something like that. Okay. And what do you hope will happen? Uh, I hope there's more Twin Peaks because it would be fascinating to see Lynch and Frost dig themselves out of yet the the d even deeper hole that they've already dug for themselves, because they, they had dug themselves a pretty deep hole at the end of season two, and to see the way that they that they got themselves out of it was fascinating and amazing in season three. So if they can dig themselves out of this hole, that's that is truly an achievement. Okay, um, well, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Um, and people, if people want to talk to you or find out more, um, where can they find you? Right. I can be found on Twitter at uh, twin underscore perfect. Am I twin underscore perfect? Uh, yep. Yeah, you are. Twin underscore perfect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, my, if you search the words twin peaks and nothing else on YouTube, my video will be the top result, which I'm very proud of. <laughs> um, 
if you search Twin Perfect, you can find me on YouTube. Uh, I have links to all of my contact information in pretty much every video. And uh, through there, you can find a link to my Discord server where you can come and talk to me directly. I'm there every single day. Uh, I can vouch for that. Yep, you are. <laughs> and yeah, come and come and say hi and and check out what um, other stuff I have to offer. I might even do a uh, follow-up video where I'm talking about the uh, all the concepts that I had to cut from this video. Uh, well, that would be great because there seems like there's still a lot you could be turning your attention to. Uh, Rossiter, thank you again for coming on. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. That was Rossiter, a.k.a. Twin Perfect, creator of the video Twin Peaks Explained, No Really. Um, we won't be another 10 months until the next episode because there's going to be uh, 20th, 30th anniversary celebrations for the pilot episode of Twin Peaks in April. So I'll almost definitely uh, be posting another podcast before then. Thank you again 